Chapter Seventeen of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen: The Capital of the Great Mogul. I made an acquaintance at Cawnpore who is too interesting to be altogether lost sight of. We met first in the early morning when I was looking for the post office. There approached from down the road a gary with a human shoulder projecting from either open window, and a prodigious arm hanging limp, pensively enjoying the cool morning air. The nearer approach of the gary disclosed the upper part of a gigantic man. His turban brushed the roof of the gary as he sat, and if he had not got his arms outside, I cannot conceive where he would have put them. As I gazed, he nodded in the friendliest way, and when I asked if he knew where the post office was, he stopped the carriage with effusive politeness. He even made as if he would descend, but reflection on the difficulties that surrounded his getting back again made him pause. As it was, he insisted upon shaking me by the hand, and so bubbled over with friendship that I felt as if we had known each other for many years. His knowledge of English was not more than sufficed with the assistance of gestures to direct me to the post office, and after he had shaken hands with me again, the patient horse moved off with him. I marvelled much who he might be, but having no means of learning, I had given up the puzzle when I met him once more amid surroundings that deepened the mystery. I had obtained the address of the editor of a native paper published in Cawnpore, and went in quest of him, desiring to have a talk on the subject of the Ilbert Bill and other matters. His office was in the native part of the town, approached by a street so narrow that driving was inconvenient, if not impossible. Holding the address in my hand, I walked down the street, a narrow lane flanked with shops a few feet square, windowless and doorless. Native shopkeepers in the street at the top, skirting the memorial gardens, might, if they pleased, dress themselves in the borrowed plumes of the English. Bonsla Mistre might vaunt his furniture's room, and Mistri Janoji might write himself up couch-builder. But in this street, older by a century than the English occupation, natives were content to follow old customs and retain ancient appellations. In each shop squatted a man or woman waiting for custom, which came but slowly. Occasionally a child came up and had weighed out to her with infinite carefulness an ounce of ghee, fished out of a jar by the impartial finger of the proprietor, which was next inserted in whatever other receptacle had a call made upon it. Now and then a woman bought a few pice worth of rice, and the trade in beetle-nuts was comparatively lively. For the rest— the dealers sat in their shops, gazing into vacancy, or talking across the narrow passage to their equally disengaged neighbour on the other side. At the corner of a by-street sat an old woman with a few handfuls of parched peas stored in a bit of paper, with a little tin measure designed to mete out the luxury to solvent customers. As none came, the old woman fondled the peas with bony hands not less parched than they, arranging and rearranging them with a tireless devotion that must have added sensibly to their flavour. Perhaps she was hungry herself, 
and thus dallied with an appetite too expensive to be satiated. I suppose the market value of the whole stock was one penny, and when this was turned over and the first profits gleaned, the old lady would have her dinner. In the meanwhile she took in sustenance by the paws, as Joey Ladle was accustomed in the recesses of his employer's cellar to take his wine. Whenever I saw a comparatively well-to-do person, I showed him the scrap of paper with the Hindu's address on. Generally he turned it so as to read it sideways, and invariably returned it with a deprecatory shake of the head. No Christian, it seems, ever penetrates this quarter. At last I came to a place with press written over it, and showing the paper was directed by sign up a courtyard. There were stables outside, and at first that seemed all, but espying a narrow passage I followed it, and came into a courtyard faced by a house of remarkable appearance, flanked on either side by outbuildings. The house was a cut between a disused gin palace and a show-booth. It was painted in gaudy colours, had glass chandeliers hanging down, and was adorned with many mirrors. In one corner of the veranda, rolled up in a blue and red coverlet, was a patriarch fast asleep, and there, in the centre of the yard, sitting upon a low couch some eight feet long by six broad, was my mysterious acquaintance of the morning. He was as delighted to see me as I was surprised at this second rencontre in this out-of-the-way yard in the native quarter. His back was turned as I entered, and he was gazing reflectively upon a basket of very dirty cakes which shared the couch with him. Around, in different postures all indicative of profoundest respect and veneration, were half a dozen men. One, waving a dirty pocket-handkerchief, was keeping flies off the too seductive face of the giant. A second held in his hand a stock of lime-leaves, and a third held fast in the damp palm of his swarthy hand a store of small pieces of betel-nut. From these the mysterious creature on the couch alternately helped himself while he gazed with troubled brow upon the casket of cakes, apparently debating with himself whether he should buy a pennyworth. But trouble vanished when he saw me. The cake-man was peremptorily dismissed, the other two servitors were waved off, and a great fat hand was affectionately pressing mine. "'Post-office, ha!' Huh? he said by way of greeting, and that being his available stock of English, he shook hands again. In his country this essentially absurd ceremony is unknown, but he knew Englishmen did it, and if he could not speak English he could shake hands, which he did frequently. I sat and talked with him for a time, but I could make nothing of him, and left without the slightest notion whether he was the Hindu editor, whom otherwise I never found, or whether he was a false prophet or a deposed prince. He was certainly, taking into account the absence of preliminary acquaintance, the friendliest man I ever met. Akra, called by the Mussulman Akbarabad, the city of Akbar, was not always the capital of the great Mughal. 
he had begun to build it in 1566, but four years later a circumstance happened which determined him to move to Fatehpur Sikri, some twenty-four miles distant. At this place there lived a holy man named Selim Christi, who foretold the birth of a son to the great emperor. The son arrived in due time, a remarkable circumstance in early married life, which so pleased Akbar that he not only called the lad Selim after the sheikh, but determined to go and reside in the immediate neighbourhood of the holy man. Agra was projected and partly built, but that was a mere trifle in the way of an imperial whim. The capital should be at Futepur Sikri, and forthwith the emperor set about building a palace for himself, one for his Christian wife, a row of palaces for his other wives, a palace for his prime minister, stables, a mint, a pavilion, a council chamber, and other marvellous structures, the ruins of which stand to this day, attesting imperial magnificence and the genius of the native workmen. But the same personal influence that had caused the creation of the city decreed its desertion. Salem Christie discovered that the pomp and circumstance of the court interfered with his devotions. He bore the affliction as long as possible, spreading his prayer carpet in quiet places and groaning inwardly in the spirit. At length the crisis came. The emperor, having created this splendid and costly jewel of a town, determined to enclose it in a casket of impregnable fortifications. Then, out of the fullness of his heart, the holy sheikh spoke. My lord, he said, twenty times has your slave made the pilgrimage to Mecca, and never, amid the heat of the day, the weariness of the night, or the hunger of the morning, was his soul so sorely tempted by worldly things, as amid the distractions of this great city, which the emperor has created, where yesterday was a lonely waste. If it be your majesty's will, said the emperor, that one should go, let it, I pray you, be your slave. And thus it was settled. The great Mogul, worthy descendant of Timur the Tartar, invincible in war, sagacious in council, omnipotent conqueror of Hindustan, yielded to the fancy of the soiled and sainted ascetic. The word was given to move on to Agra, and the beautiful palaces, the spacious courtyards, the lofty council chambers, were quitted as promptly as if they had been furnished lodgings. The sheikh regained his solitude, the greater solitude of a deserted city, and when he died was buried here, in a tomb whose floor is jasper, whose walls are marble inlaid with precious stones, whose doors are of solid ebony, and over which rises an arched canopy covered with mother-of-pearl. A city, more or less, was nothing to Akbar, absolute master of a hundred million men and of all the riches of India. Having created a splendid city at Fatehpur Sikri, he determined to excel it at Agra, and succeeded. His palace, with its many adjuncts, remains to this day 
in a condition which enables a visitor to realise all the magnificence of the Mogul court. It stands high on the banks of the Jumna, the buildings occupying a space of a mile and a half in circuit, surrounded by a glorious red sandstone wall sixty feet high. In Akbar's time there were outside this battlemented wall a ditch and rampart. These have disappeared, but the inner moat, thirty feet wide, still exists, and the fort is entered by the drawbridge which once resounded to the tread of Akbar's spearmen. In a great courtyard surrounded by arcades, now used as a British arsenal, stands the judgment seat of Akbar. In a recess in the centre of the hall is a pavilion of white marble inlaid with mosaic, where the throne was placed. Below is a large white slab on which the Prime Minister of the hour, they were changed even more frequently than capitals, stood and introduced claimants for justice to the notice of the Emperor. Behind the throne are a series of chambers lighted by windows of trellis-work, closely cut in marble. Through these, on great occasions when durbars were held, the ladies of the Zenana used to peer forth, themselves unseen, just as ladies in the House of Commons at this day peep from their cage over the Speaker's chair. This hall has recently been repaired by the Indian government at an expenditure of eight thousand rupees. Close by is the Motel Musjid, or Gem Mosque, a gem of architecture which would be held as matchless if a mile down the river, clearly seen from the walls of the fort, the white dome of the Taj did not seem to float a fairy thing far up in the blue sky. In this mosque, built of pure white marble, Akbar was accustomed to worship in the select company of his many wives. The emperor, the princes of his household, his ministers and chief men of war, spread their prayer rugs on the marble pavement, while the ladies said their prayers behind marble screens, which guarded them from wanton glances. Shah Jihan, grandson of Akbar, was, half a century later, provided with prolonged and exceptional opportunities of conducting his devotions in this mosque. His son, Aurangzebe, having arrived at the conclusion that his father had had enough of sovereignty when he had sat on the throne for nearly a quarter of a century, shut him up in this mosque, and peacefully reigned in his stead. At the back of the Hall of Justice is a corridor in which lies Akbar's marble couch, grievously shattered and clumsily mended as if it were a broken dish. But even in its decrepitude it puts to shame a gilt-backed, cane-seated, British lion-decked, uncomfortable monstrosity which the Nawab of Lucknow presented to the Viceroy when he held a durbar at Agra. The Emperor's palace remains as to its main structure in excellent preservation, but its bejewelled walls have been sadly pecked at by successive hosts of conquerors, notably including the British soldier, who seems to have had a fine eye for jasper, agate, and cornelian, and a deft hand for picking it out with the point of his bayonet. The Indian government, with well-dispensed liberality, have recently wakened up to the value of these priceless possessions, and have not only taken measures to stop further depredations, but have begun the work of restoration. 
for the last five years two hundred men have been daily employed in restoring the unsightly gaps whence the precious stones have been plundered under a better taskmaster than akbar these descendants of the early artists labour cutting out marble with bows strung with fine steel wire shaping and polishing precious stones and fitting them into the wall with a nicety which but for varied colour would defy discovery of the joining places the original carving of the pure marble not being portable or saleable property has suffered least and there are suites of rooms containing panels some four feet high from the rough face of which are carved in relief beautiful flowers which bend their heads with all the graceful repose of the living plant even beyond these in beauty are the screens each one carved out of a solid slab in marble and looking like delicate lace-work sometimes a whole window is thus wrought giving glimpses of the jumna which washes the walls of the fort and of the green fields that lie beyond often it is an open screen over a doorway designed to promote the circulation of air which is one of the chief ends of the house-builders in india wherever the screens appear they are beautiful beyond possibility of reproduction by modern art and it is well that so many remain undamaged in the diwani kas or private audience hall is another throne of akbar's a slab of black marble six feet square like his couch it is cracked right across at intervals on the line of the crack are two smudged red spots whereby hangs a tail when the maharattas continuing their triumphant campaign against the mussulmans took agra the rajah of Bhurtpur presumptuously seated himself on the throne of the great mogul whereupon the shocked marble cracked and a gout of blood issued from its anguished heart many years later lord ellenborough having conquered the conquerors of the mogul dynasty took his seat on the throne when once more the sensitive marble distilled a huge drop of blood this satisfactorily accounts for the second stain across the broad courtyard is a smaller throne of white marble here according to mussulman tradition the emperor's fool was wont to take his seat and mimic his mighty master it is noteworthy that the jester with a shrewdness not incompatible with native simplicity was careful to have his throne well outside the swing of the emperor's scimitar in this part of the building is the jessamine tower with bouquets of jessamine carved in relief out of massive blocks of marble leading out of it is a court paved with squares of black and white marble so as to form a pachisi board pachisi is a game something like backgammon but in place of ivory pieces akbar was wont to engage a number of pretty girls who stood upon the squares and moved hither and thither at a signal from the players in this quarter is also the shish mahal a palace of glass an oriental bath the marble roof and walls of which are decorated with thousands of bits of looking-glass in akbar's time the bath was served with water falling in a broad sheet into a marble basin 
behind the waterfall lamps shone others blazed amid the fountains their refracted light gleaming at a thousand points where it caught the miniature mirrors leading out of the zenana apartments is a small square jealously shut in by high walls here the ladies of the zenana used to chaffer with happy merchants admitted to show their wares the garden of the zenana is save in respect of lack of care much the same as it was when the imperial wives walked and gossiped under the shadow of its trees the centre is divided by stone copings into little squares and ovals sometimes enclosing a foot or two of earth and again forming the boundaries of a mimic lake here too is mochi bawan where akbar forgetful of the cares of state and assisted by his favourite wives whiled away the summer afternoon fishing in a tank recent excavations carried on in the neighbourhood of the fort have brought to light a number of marble pillars some broken others whole but all preserving the imperishable work of the early sculptor they lie in a heap in one of the courtyards there being apparently no settled scheme of dealing with them perhaps they might be spared for one of the london parks as examples of the position which art had reached in india at the time queen elizabeth was on the throne of england outside akbar's palace but still within the circle of the fort is a palace built by jehangir akbar's son the passion for palace building was so great among the mogul emperors that the beautiful house akbar had built would not serve his successor he raised one for himself and to his own perpetual glory going back for his model to his father's earlier essay at futtebor sikri jehangir's homestead is built of red sandstone and has in respect of architecture nothing in common with the dainty palace of his great father akbar's taste was essentially mohammedan jehangir a longer settler in the conquered country made his house a stately monument of native architecture not least in interest to the english visitor are the gates of somnath which find lodgment in akbar's palace they are of sandalwood finely carved with the colour deepened and enriched by age as gates go they are not massive being only twelve feet high and not more than conveniently broad to be passed by a pair of loaded camels marching abreast on a panel on the left doorway are three metal bosses said to have been taken from the shield of sultan mahmoud it was lord ellenborough who lifted the gates of somnath into a high place in history my brethren and friends he wrote in the famous proclamation to the princes and people of india issued at the close of the afghan campaign in eighteen forty two our victorious army bears the gates of somnath in triumph from afghanistan and the despoiled tomb of sultan mahmoud looks upon the ruins of ghuzni the insult of eight hundred years is at last avenged the gates of the temple of somnath so long the memorial of your humiliation are become the proudest record of your national glory the proof of your superiority in arms over the nations beyond the indus to you princes and chiefs of sir hind of rajivana of malwa and of gujarat 
i shall commit this glorious trophy of successful war you will yourselves with all honour transmit the gates of sandalwood through your respective territories to the restored temple of somnath this remarkable production which reads like the effort of a schoolboy who had spent his nights and days studying the bulletins of napoleon i and macaulay's essay on warren hastings met with a fate which must have astonished as much as it pained the noble author it was greeted in england with a shout of uncontrollable laughter the reverberation of which stopped the southward progress of the gates the princes and chiefs of sirhind of rajivana and of malwa hustled them along through their respective territories as quietly as possible the prince of gujarat conveniently ignored the proud mission the gates were stranded at agra and now find shelter in the palace of akbar surrounded by an iron kitchen-area railing of prim uncompromising pattern by which birmingham shows what it can do when placed upon its metal as for the temple of somnath it goes further to ruin without sighing for its sandalwood gates which in truth there is grave reason to doubt ever belonged to it End of chapter 17